Today we're continuing our series through the curtain. This is a series on uh, the subject of death and the afterlife and uh, all the pieces and parts and what that means for us today. I'm always stunned why we uh, don't like thinking about this subject or avoid this subject when it affects every single one of our lives a lot more than we often realize. Uh, it, you know, it's kind of like when you, when you buy, a, a, let's say, a car or a, I just bought a new phone, you know, and all of a sudden you realize all the other people who've got that phone and all the other people who got that car say, wow, I thought I was the only one. Look at all these cars and it's all the same, you know. I didn't realize that until I started thinking about it. Well, death is very much the same thing. When you start to actually meditate on it, I know that sounds really not like a positive thing, uh, but when you start to think about it, you realize that it affects your life almost on a daily basis. Uh, in some shape or form. And when it comes to Christian thought and what the Bible has to say about this, there's a whole lot of moving parts. You can't just talk about what it's like and what death is. You talk about the afterlife. You can't talk about the afterlife without talking about what it is, what's heaven, what's hell, and what comes after that. And all these little pieces and parts come into play when you think about death. We're in part three today. Uh, it, it, at the beginning, we talked about how death does not have to be something that we look at as a negative or something that we're terrified of. Paul certainly wasn't afraid of it. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? So he, he talked about a departure, that he would depart from his physical body somehow and go and be with Christ, which is far better. So he was actually anticipating it, not loathing it. He was meditating on it as he was in prison, and this was not something he was afraid of at all. Well, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can that be for us as well? We talked about that last week, and the the whole thing of naturalism that's very much a part of our world and part of our culture, and this view that there, there is no God, there is no afterlife, there is no uh, you know, miracles, there are none of these things, and this is a naturalist position. Here in Quebec, we have the secularist position, which is a kind of a piggyback to naturalism, right? Just a reminder, tomorrow's a special day in Quebec. If you can vote, I, I, I encourage you to do your, do your civic uh, responsibility and get out there and vote. I'm not telling you who to vote for by talking to you about secularism, but it is law in Quebec, as we talked about last week. Uh, but there are problems with naturalism and problems with secularism, right? The things that can't be explained. So a biblical view of these things, a worldview that's kind of through the glasses of the Scripture, is a supernaturalist worldview. And in that worldview, we say, well, yes, we acknowledge that there's a God. We acknowledge that there's an afterlife. We acknowledge that there's an, the infinity of the soul. We acknowledge these things. And this doesn't mean that you don't live in the real world, okay? Some people think that Christians and people who actually believe the Bible 
you know, have low IQs or something and are unintelligent and don't like science and all of this. Folks, that's the opposite is true. The The whole discipline of science is based on the fact that the belief that there's a God who created with order and that order can be observed. And we observe things that repeat. And we say, well, why do these things repeat? This seems to tell us that there's an orderer. Someone has designed it. So the whole science is all about discovering that order. And really, the foundation of science was kind of like a form of worship. People were appreciating God by understanding how things happen and why things happen. So please don't get the idea that Christians, just because uh, uh, Scripture clearly espouses a supernaturalist view, that somehow Christians are a little bit daft and, you know, don't, don't think that the dinosaurs existed or something or, you know, and they, they just sort of hide from all kinds of forms of, of knowledge and all of that. Nothing can be further th- than the truth. Yes, dinosaurs existed, just, just to tell you, okay? Um, so, uh, uh, also on the other side, it needs to be said that a supernaturalist view is not um, a view that, when you go by the Bible, uh, there are a lot of other religions that espouse a supernaturalist view. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're a biblical view. And I say this because what I have seen is, as a pastor is that even people who believe the scripture, church-going people, people of faith, people who are trying to serve the Lord and so on, sometimes they mishmash supernaturalist views from other religions into Christianity. The most common one that I've seen is what's called animism. And in animism, everything has a soul, everything has a spirit, everything is a spirit. So you have a good day, it's a good spirit. You have a bad day, it's a bad spirit. You know, you, you tripped and fell on the way out of your house. Well, it must have been a bad spirit. You know, everything went well today. Well, it must have been a good spirit. You know, someone gets angry, it's a bad spirit. Someone's in a good mood, it's a good spirit. Because everything has a spirit and all the spirits affect everything and everyone. And sometimes when people mishmash that with Christianity, say, well, if something good happened, it's the Holy Spirit. And if something bad happened, it's an evil spirit. Well, this you don't find in the scripture either, right? So there's a balance when you understand what, what the, the, the worldview of scripture clearly is a supernaturalist view, but this is not an unintelligent or non-discerning or non-thinking worldview, okay? I say this uh, be, because of what I have seen, and when we talk about the subject of today, uh, the subject of hell which is very, very much an avoided subject. You've got to have accurate information, and you've got to be thinking about it. Uh, And what I want to do today with hell, actually, is to defend it. Because right now, uh, even in church culture, the doctrine of hell is one of about a half a dozen um, uh, pieces uh, that lead to what's called deconstructionism. And in the deconstructionist movement, people who've grown up in church, who have believed in historic Christian doctrine, 
are walking away from that historic Christian doctrine and dismantling it and deconstructing it. And one of the main reasons, one of about a half a dozen reasons, is hell. And they find this completely, completely unacceptable and uh, have all kinds of ways of thinking about it. I'll show you a quote in a, in a moment uh, from a really popular individual who's deconstructed his faith. But I want to defend it today. I actually want to defend hell. And I hope that at the end of this message, if you get very little out of it, that you would at least grasp an appreciation for the justice of God and for the, uh, how it makes sense that, yes, hell would be part of that justice. And I hope that it would motivate you to share your faith in a more uh, intentional way and in a more maybe passionate way uh, with others. When you talk about heaven, when you talk about hell and heaven and the afterlife in general, here's the thing about it. The information that you get, you've got to get from the Bible. And there's an obvious reason in, in people who go there don't come back, right? You, you can play around with that. You can try and peek behind the curtain and delve into the unseen world, but that's really dangerous, dangerous business. People who pass through the curtain, an expression I use for dying, they don't come back. So we don't have pictures, we don't have photos, we don't have any of that. Yes, we have uh, near-death experiences, but these are highly unreliable. They're all over the place. What they do tell us is that there's an unseen world. There's a supernatural world. Clearly, there's something on the other side. But the details and the hard information, it's all over the place when you look at these experiences, and there are tens of thousands of them that you can study. You can look at what popular culture teaches about heaven and hell and the afterlife, but that's just popular culture. That's just people's opinion. Uh, you can listen to the pastor and the priest and the podcast, but if you're not going to the scripture yourself and you're not looking at it yourself and you're not uh, digging into it yourself, you're not going to get accurate information. And I'll even go a step further all kinds of other religious views and philosophies teach about the afterlife. Now, uh, I would still say if you're going to get accurate information, you're going to get it from the Scripture. I don't say that to be pompous or arrogant. I say it based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, we have reason to believe the things that he says, and we would take note of the things that he says about hell and heaven. So I don't say that in a pompous way, but if you're going to get your information, you need to get it from the Scripture because, wow, is there a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of weird opinions and a lot of weird things taught. Uh, some of them come more from Dante's Inferno and Greek mythology than they do from the pages of the Scripture uh, Aaron Rodgers, the great quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. Any of you like the Packers? Any of you like Aaron Rodgers? Any football fans here? One, okay. I guess you don't like Aaron Rodgers. Well, I don't like Tom Brady. So if you like Tom Brady, well, we, we would disagree on that. Anyway, uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Anyway, Aaron Rodgers says this very famously now. 
He's an individual who has deconstructed his faith. And he said this in an interview, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. Uh, Like what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn most of his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? So says Aaron Rodgers. Now, he's not alone. This is a... This is a typical point of view in this whole deconstructionist thing. And he raises, uh, he raises what many, many people say in their hearts. Maybe you've said the same thing. Uh, this is why I say you need to get your information uh, from the scripture. So I'm going to give you on two slides, and I've spent hours on this, and those hours are condensed from many, many years of looking into this subject, but I'm going to give you on two slides what I would say are the most succinct scriptures in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, about the subject of hell. Uh, Take a picture on your phone. If you're watching online, freeze it, screenshot it, do whatever. Um, I've done the work for you, okay? And these passages, in my view, are the ones that are extremely hard to debate and dismantle. You collect them all together and you have a pretty clear picture of what the scripture teaches about this critical, critical subject, all right? And um, I actually printed them out, all of this, and I've got, I don't know, 10 pages uh, of this. So I hope you have time today. We'll be here till about 3 o'clock. All right, talking on this. No, I'm just kidding. So that's why I put it on a, on a screen for you. But, you, you know, starting back from Numbers 16 in the Bible's Old Testament, when you have the sons of Korah who rebelled against Moses and were swallowed up alive, t- taken down into this place that has this odd name to it uh, that Moses uses, Sheol. Uh, so hell is an English word that we get from, has a long history, comes from Old German, which means concealed. Uh, and I don't really like the word hell. I, I know most people don't like it, but I don't like it just in terms of studying it because it puts all these images into our head that aren't always what's coming out of the pages of the Bible. And we tend to overlay these things onto our understanding of hell without getting our information from the scripture. So sometimes when you see this word, depending on what version of the Bible you're using, there's a, there's a Hebrew word, sheol, a curious word that is sometimes translated into hell in the English version. There is also a much more rare word in the Hebrew, abaddon which is sometimes translated that way. And in Greek, that word is apollyon, which is sometimes translated hell in your New Testament. But sometimes you will see this picture, this presentation of hell through these words. And you've got to dig into the original language to see these words because you're not going to see these in most of your Bibles, which are translated into English, unless they really have good footnotes or using a study Bible or something. But way back from the book of Numbers, you see this curious idea. It's a little foggy for sure in the Old Testament of this kind of place of, of spirits who die, of people who die. 
And you see it even as early as the book of Numbers. You see the psalmist talk about it even in Proverbs. You see a couple of passages, curious, that talk about this. Even Job talks about this. The most um, often cited passages uh, are from Isaiah and, um, and Daniel. And the one from Isaiah at the bottom there, Isaiah 66 and 24, uh, this is actually quoted by Jesus. Uh, the one from Isaiah, I'll read to you, Isaiah 14, verses 9 to 11, talking about the king of Babylon and what will happen to him. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. The realm of the dead is that word Sheol. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. So it's very foreboding. Seems to be bad news coming for this king. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave. Grave is that word Sheol in the Hebrew. Along with the noise of your harps. It's a very damning passage to this, this king. And it seems like there's this place that's going to take him and going to punish him. This is Isaiah 14, very clear uh, in the Old Testament. The, the other passage in Isaiah 66 and 24, it's the very, very last verse of the book of Isaiah. Uh, uh, they will all go out and look on the dead bodies. This is after a time of wrath and judgment of those who rebelled against me. It's very graphic, but Jesus will quote it. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Wow, fierce from the, the pen of the prophet Isaiah. He speaks the most clearly of anybody in the Old Testament. You're not going to find much more save uh, the prophet Daniel in the last chapter of his uh, book. He says in verse 2 of, of Daniel chapter 12, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And those passages pretty well are the ones that are, we put them together, they're pretty hard to dispute, hard to dismantle, fairly small. So in the Old Testament, you have bits and pieces. It's an incomplete picture, uh, even heaven. Is, a, is an incomplete picture in the Old Testament. Bits and pieces, little clues here and there, but not a whole lot of information to go on. You talk to uh, Jewish people and conservative rabbis of today, and you talk to them about the afterlife, you're going to get all kinds of different responses. When you talk about hell, uh, their view of hell is actually that hell is a purging process. So when a... When a let's say, an evil person dies, uh, that person experiences hell for a maximum period of 12 months. And there's a whole system of prayer for that person who has died that starts uh, the, the day that they die and goes on for a year. There's a whole system. And what happens is the person experiences the pain of their own sin. 
and the, the, the pain that it caused other people. And that experience is kind of hell for their soul. It's not really in a place. It's experiencing somehow this kind of, of pain and, and remorse and eventually repentance. And at the end of the 12 months, the soul then goes to be with God. Uh, so that's the Jewish view of hell. Interesting view, but not really one that's founded in the pages of the Tanakh. It's more the rabbis who have come up with this 12-month thing and all of that. So it's, that's to tell you it's very foggy. And even people who use the Bible, uh, the most famous are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they, had, they use the same Bible that Protestant churches uses, but, use, but what they do is they play around with it. And some of you who may know Jehovah's Witnesses or maybe even come from a Jehovah's Witness background, you know this. And they do not believe in uh, hell in terms of an, uh, an infinite punishment of the unrepentant of the evil person. Uh, they believe in annihilation. And that means that the person just is done. Their soul is done. Their body's done. Everything's done. And that's it. That's all for the evil person. And they play around with the passages of Scripture. This is why I say dig into the Scripture if you want to understand the reality of hell. When you get to the New Testament, you have a totally different uh, setup. And I'll put this on your screen. All fits on one slide. Uh, these are, again... The best, uh, most clear references to this subject that you'll find in the New Testament, the ones that are highlighted in orange there, are parallels. So Matthew and Luke record Jesus uh, talking about the same thing at the same time, all right? And if your camera's not working or anything, come see me. I will give you these slides, no problem, okay? I didn't write it. <laughs> so, But I want you to notice something uh, if you look at your screen there. Who's the one... Who's, who's giving the most information about hell in the whole Bible? Matthew, yeah. And look at all the chapters in Matthew. Chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 13, 16, 18, 22, 23, 24, 25. Do you know who's... The, Matthew is capturing the preaching of one person who's talking about it. Who's the person? Who's the person? It's Jesus Jesus is the preacher of hell in the Bible. He's the one who, who makes it the clearest, nobody else. The other writers of the New Testament are just picking up on what Jesus said or what Isaiah said, that's it. But Jesus is the preacher of hell. And this is strange because most people love Jesus in our culture. Say, they say, I don't like the Old Testament. I like Jesus. Jesus is loving Jesus is kind, Jesus is gracious, Jesus is merciful, Jesus is forgiving, and they love Jesus. But when they read Jesus in the New Testament, what they're going to see is he spends like 15% of his time talking about hell. And all of this in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John is Jesus. He's half of your screen, and he, he is the preacher of hell in the Bible. And this just shows you how 
rarely people actually read the scripture because if people really read what Jesus said, they wouldn't be saying all the time, oh, we just love Jesus, but we don't like the God of the Old Testament. They might well reverse their position and say, the Old Testament I like, but this Jesus in the New Testament, he talks about this hell just a little too much. So I prefer the Old Testament. If people really read, read the Bible, they would have the opposite opinion. So Jesus starting, I mean, from the Sermon on the Mount, he is, he is talking about hell, and hell in the New Testament, sometimes in this list, you have really four different words that, depending on your translation, are going to be translated hell. One of them is Gehenna. Gehenna is the valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament, uh, which turned into a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, and it was a place where all kinds of unmentionable things took place in the Old Testament, all kinds of worship of other gods, uh, sacrifices to other gods, and over time it got raised to the ground. Uh, I think it was Josiah, the king, destroyed all of the stuff that was going on there and basically raised it to the ground, and then it turned into a dump, a garbage dump that was always burning in Jesus' day, they would throw their garbage out there, and it would be on fire. And Jesus would use this word Gehenna uh, when he's talking about hell. He uses it mostly in Matthew's gospel. You'll see it all over the place. And the English translators uh, sometimes translate that word hell. There's also a word Tartarus, which is used very, very rarely, which is sometimes translated hell, depending on your translation. There's the word Hades which did have a place, the Greeks believed in Hades in a sense, and Jesus uses it in particular ways. Sometimes that's translated hell, and there's a word abyss, which is sometimes translated hell. I told you it's complicated. So when you look at, at this screen, the striking thing is that it is Jesus who is the preacher of hell, who brings it up more than anybody, starting as early as the Sermon on the Mount and then talking in Matthew 25 about the end of time. So it, incredible how uh, it, it's really when you go through these lists, and I've gone through every single passage of Scripture on, on both screens there uh, before this message, you just sort of sit there. It's, it's quite stunning, folks, when you read all these passages and you see the weight of it and the uh, reality of it, it really does strike you um, when you get into the Scripture. So I want to defend hell just, just briefly here, um, just by asking some common questions that people bring up. Number one, is it misinterpreted? Is the idea of hell misinterpreted, misunderstood, the answer would be a 100% yes, but it's misunderstood and misinterpreted in many, many ways. Uh, number one, as, as we've already mentioned, hell is not, it's not annihilation. So some people look and they say, well, you know, the, these Christians talk about this whole thing, but this is not really what the scripture is trying to teach. What it's trying to teach is annihilation. And it really isn't annihilation, it's, uh, uh, or, or it is, isn't really an eternal punishment place, it's just annihilation. So the, so the Protestant view and the Catholic view, they've totally misunderstood this whole thing. Uh, but when you read the scripture, what you will find is the opposite. 
And again, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses who, who perpetuate this view. The Jewish view holds this Gehenna as a kind of a purging. But both groups resist, resist fiercely the idea that it's a place of eternal punishment. But when you read the Scripture, when you read Jesus, when you read Paul, when you read Peter, when you read Jude, and you see the language that they use... I mean, it's so hard to get around it. You know, Jesus uses these terms, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness is terminology, eternal fire, he says, eternal punishment. He's using words there that, uh, that, that don't show a sort of, well, the person just gets wiped out. And the person just ceases to exist completely. No, Jesus uses these words very, very intentionally. Uh, and he uses them more than once. He uses them over and over and over again. I mean, it's striking. Paul, he uses the term punishment of eternal destruction uh, in Second Thessalonians. Peter talks about chains of gloomy darkness. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, punishment of eternal fire, utter darkness. These terms are quite clear and quite succinct, and they don't speak of annihilation. And the, the other problem with that, I mean, and I've debated Jehovah's Witnesses, and I remember having them at my door, and I said to them, you know, what happens if I'm a really, really bad person? What happens if I'm a really evil person and I'm definitely not one of you lot, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, but I'm an evil, evil person. Tell me what happens to me after I die. And they said, nothing. You just, you, you, you're, you're done and you don't get resurrected uh, later on. We'll talk about the resurrection in another message and that's it, you're done. And I said, well, why, why in the world should I become a Jehovah's Witness then? I can just do whatever I want. And there's nothing afterward. There's no punishment for me. And if you're a good Jehovah's Witness, a really good Jehovah's Witness, uh, you're, uh, the only 144,000 of them actually get to go to heaven. And the rest, the good ones, are indeed resurrected physically from the dead. But the really bad people, the unrepentant, the people who hated God and all of this, the evil people, they're just done. And this would be strange because one could argue, wow, so the evil person is exempt from the afterlife. Hmm. So the evil person faces no judgment in the afterlife, but the righteous person faces reward in the afterlife. So it seems like you, you're exempted from being created in the image of God and having an infinite soul. If you're evil, one could, one could really challenge that supposition, right? So there's a lot of problems with the view, but when you look into what the, what the information says, and that's just New Testament, folks. I'm not talking about some of those passages in the Old Testament. Wow, I mean, if anything, it's against annihilation. Another idea that people have is that hell's a party. And people say, well, you know, uh, I'm not a Christian, that's good for you, but... I do my own thing, you know, I live my own life, and, and a lot of that life for you, Mr. Christian, is, is, would be an immoral life, and I quite enjoy living it. So, and so my view of hell, a person might say, is that it's a party in, in the afterlife. I get to be with all my sinful friends 
we get to do our drugs and our this and our that, and, we get, and, and God leaves us alone. And you Christians leave us alone, and we're all together, and it's a sort of a perpetual party. And, you know, the devil is waiting for us with his red tail and his pitchfork, and he's kind of in charge of the place. And when we go down there, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of heavy metal music and all of our stuff that we really enjoy. And nobody can tell us what to do. That's great. That's fine. No problem. We'll, we're looking forward to hell. So stop trying to tell us about your Jesus. When you look again into the pages of Scripture, this is completely, completely false. Uh, Luke chapter 16, we have a, a story that Jesus told. He, he tells us uh, this story only in uh, Luke's gospel is it recorded. It's a very disturbing story about two men who die. Uh, one of them, we have his name, Lazarus, uh, loved by God. The other one, we don't have his name. He's a rich man. So this rich man uh, is, is clothed in purple and fine linen, Luke chapter 16, and he, he's, uh, he's got food, he feasts sumptuously every day, and he's, got a, a, he's rich, he's got a big house, he's got a gate outside, and outside of his gate, there's a, there's a poor man, he's destitute, we have his name, Lazarus, he's covered with sores, he's obviously in terrible, terrible shape, and he just wants the scraps of food from the man's table. But the man walks by him every day, gives him nothing. The dogs come and lick his sores. I mean, it's a graphic picture of suffering. Both these men die. The, the poor man dies and the rich man dies. They both go to different places in Jesus' story. The poor man goes to what's called Abraham's side. Abraham's side, the only time it's ever used in the Scripture. And the rich man dies and he goes to this place, Hades, sometimes translated in your Bibles, hell. And it says that he's in torment there. It doesn't exactly say how. Uh, it gives a picture, but we don't know how literally to actually take this picture. He lifts up his eyes and he's able to see uh, Abraham, the patriarch from the book of Genesis. He's able to see Abraham. He's able to see Lazarus, who's now dead. And he can see them. And he, he, the way he speaks is interesting, you know. He, he asks Abraham to have mercy on him and to, ask, and to tell Lazarus, who he never helped in his whole life. He walked by Lazarus all of, his, all of his days that Lazarus was in front of his gate begging for food. He walked by him. And now he's asking Abraham to ask Lazarus to do him a favor. Curious. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Wow, is that ever graphic? Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now the tables have turned, you see. Now he is comforted here, but you are in anguish. Everything has been flipped on its head since you both went through the curtain. And besides all this, Lazarus can't cross over. There's an uncrossable chasm. You can't come to us. We can't come to you. And so that's not going to happen. I refuse your request. And so we say, then he begs Abraham. And he says, well, then tell Lazarus to go to my father's house. His father's in the land of the living on the other side of the curtain. Tell him to go to my father's house for I've got five brothers. So let Lazarus warn my five brothers lest they also come into this place of 
torment. Abraham says, not going to happen either. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. Let them listen to them. And so he says, no, no, it's not enough. If someone comes back from the dead, if Lazarus is somehow able to cross back, he can warn my brothers. Curious that the man doesn't ask to come out. Why doesn't he want to come out? Curious that there doesn't seem to be anybody else around him that he's mentioning at least. He wants Lazarus to help him. The request is refused. He wants Lazarus to come back from the dead to preach to his brothers. The request is refused. If someone comes from the dead, they'll listen. And Abraham says, no. If they don't listen to Moses, if they don't listen to the prophets, they're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Hmm. Told very tongue-in-cheek by Jesus because Jesus would eventually rise from the dead. But it's not a party. And there you have Hades. Uh, most, most scholars would say Hades isn't even the final hell. It's a kind of a temporary place of suffering before the final, final, final hell. We'll get to that maybe later, maybe Wednesday, maybe next week. Like I said, a lot of detail, a lot of detail when you study this subject, but definitely not a party. Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 uh, speaking of, the, of, a, of a final judgment to come, uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse uh, 41, talking about the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, the repentant, the unrepentant, and a separation of these different kinds of people that will take place at the end of time. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the way Jesus refers to it here is it's a place that's prepared not specifically for people, but specifically designed for, prepared for the devil and his angels. He acknowledged clearly the existence of such beings, and he says that this is what it's prepared for. Now, there are people who are going there as well, according to Jesus, but it's not really prepared for them. It was prepared specifically for these supernatural beings as a place of final and infinite punishment, not a party. So the devil is not in hell waiting for people to have a party. He's not even there yet, but he will be there one day. He will be cast there. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 uh, speaks of this, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the final end of these supernatural beings, something that Jesus referred to. Doesn't sound like a party at all, at all, at all. So this is a misunderstanding. Is it disturbing? hell? Is it repulsive hell? Well, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I mean, there are lots of things in life that are disturbing and repulsive. But you can't say, well, just because I find it that way, it, it therefore doesn't exist. You, we better be careful if we make such assumptions about hell. The rich man in Luke 16 probably lived under many, many different kinds of assumptions. And the tables were flipped and the tables were completely turned on him 
when he passed through the curtain. There he is in Hades, and yet Lazarus is in paradise with Abraham. It's quite a change. Is this disturbing? Is it repulsive? Yes, indeed it is. Uh, C.S. Lewis said if there was any doctrine that he could remove, it would be that one. But he came to the conclusion that it makes sense. The great skeptic uh, Bertrand Russell loathed the idea of hell. Uh, Charles Darwin, uh, Origin of Species, loathed the idea of hell. Repulsive. Aaron Rodgers, whose quote I put on, loathes the idea, repulsive idea. Ah, but that doesn't mean that it's not real. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that you should dismiss it and say, well, Jesus must have been wrong. The New Testament must have been wrong. Things that we read in the it must be wrong, must be erroneous, must be something. But this just, just can't be. It's just too disturbing. It's just too repulsive. It's just how could this be? How could this make sense? And this brings up the last question. Is it unfair? Most people would say yes. It, I believe that the scripture is arguing no, not at all. On the contrary, it's very fair, very fair. We have in our culture a perceived injustice about hell. The classic question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? This is a, an extremely often asked question. It requires a longer answer, but the question itself is a little bit amiss. Um, when you talk to people who live in different cultures, who don't live in North America, who live in countries and places in the world where all they've experienced in their lives is injustice, all they've experienced in their lives is suffering, and it's at the hands of people that they've suffered. They've watched as things have happened to them, as they've, as they've been victimized repeatedly by people. They've watched as their children have been victimized by people, as systems of people have victimized them over and over again, and there's absolutely no justice whatsoever for those people. They've watched as their children were killed in front of them. They've watched unspeakable suffering and injustice repeatedly, 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 over and over and over. That's what they've lived all of their lives. And you talk to those people who have lived through it about the idea of an infinite punishment in the afterlife for those who did those things to them. In the words of uh, Mark Clark, uh, great... Um, uh, book that he has written that I would recommend to you called The Problem of God. He has a whole chapter devoted to hell. One of the best pieces on hell I've ever read is in that book, The Problem of God by Mark Clark. He says those people who've experienced all that kind of suffering and have watched, watched those things happen, I guarantee you they're not losing any sleep over the doctrine of hell. They're not losing any sleep over it because for them, it's the final justice that they never saw. They never saw it in this life. And if there's a God in heaven, he is going to bring justice. He is going to flip the scale. He is the one who's going to make it right because all we saw was wrong in our life. And if there's a God in heaven, and if he is just, and if he is holy, and if he is righteous, then he will judge. 
So it's quite cultural, this perceived injustice about hell. You know, injustice to us in North America is somebody cut us off in the grocery line. (laughs) That's so unfair. That's so unjust. We need to make a rule about these people who cut me off in the grocery line. Like I'm getting a lawyer. They cut me off in the grocery line. And that's injustice to us most of the time. While folks, we need to enlarge our scope and travel a little bit because there, there are places in the world where the, we're living on another planet in our understanding of justice and hell. Number two, as infinite beings, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. We have a beginning, but we'll have no ending. It doesn't matter if you're righteous or unrighteous. You have a beginning, but you have no ending. When you die, you pass through that curtain. Your physical body dies, but you depart and you go to the other side. You enter into the world of the unseen. You enter into that world. We get our information for, uh, about that world from the Scripture. But what we're taught, what, we're, what is in this book, and you can in some ways intuit this, Even without the Bible, you can can intuitively come to a place where you understand that there's an afterlife. You can't prove it, but you can, through intuition, get there. We are infinite beings, folks. We have a beginning and no ending, and we have sinned against the eternal God. What's he supposed to do about that? How's he supposed to remain holy and remain completely holy and completely righteous and completely without sin. And we, his creation, created in his image, have sinned against him repeatedly. The Bible paints a very stark picture. Uh, 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 We call this anthropology and theology, at least. Uh, The picture of man is that man by nature is an enemy of God. By nature. So our nature is up against God. We're born that way. We're born as with a barrier between God and us. This is, this is a stark picture. Most philosophies and religions will not say that. They'll say that we're born basically good and we learn evil along the way. The Bible says almost the reverse. It says that we're born in trouble. We have a nature that makes us, by, by, just by our very nature, we are at odds with our Creator. David put it best in Psalm 51 after the incident with Bathsheba, the conspiracy to commit murder, the murder of, of Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, and, and this mess that he, had, he created, which never lived him down even in this life. He says in a moment of repentance to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Against you and you alone. And he doesn't mean I didn't sin against Uriah, I didn't sin against Bathsheba, I didn't sin against any of these people. He's not saying that. He's saying at the end of the day, when all the dust settles, what I've done is I've broken your law first and foremost. I've sinned against you, I've I've maligned you, I've hated you, I've gone against your morals, God against you, and you alone have I sinned. Well, what's God supposed to do with that? This idea, well, he sends people to hell. When people live in a particular way, this side of the grave, they will continue to live in a particular way on the other side of it. It's a continuation. 
It's not, well, God somehow delights in this, and he looks and he picks and chooses, and he says, well, you, you go here, and you, you go there. No, it's a continuation of the posture you have taken in this life. Is it a posture for God, in submission to God, or is it a posture against him? And then that'll bring up the question, well, what about those who never heard? I'll deal more with this on on Wednesday night, but that's an argument that's a little bit fallacious. Everybody hears in one way or the other, the scripture will argue. I'll break it down on on Wednesday. Hell, uh, just to end it here, this is created specifically, as we've seen, for the devil and his angels. There's no delight uh, in God's heart when people go there. He designed the place as a final judgment against evil. He's not going to annihilate evil. He's going to punish evil eternally. He's going to punish it infinitely. It's a supernatural place designed for spiritual beings. And that punishment is going to be fair and recompensed according to God's nature and the nature of the beings being punished. Folks, if we meditated on the idea that we ourselves, we ourselves are created in the image of God and will have no end. You will have no end. Your body is going to give out. But who you are, your soul, your spirit is going to continue. What choices are you making with the time that you have? Is your posture opposed to God or is it in submission to God? And only you can answer that question. And it's not just about, well, you know, the Christians who pray the the prayer, they're the ones who are avoiding hell. No, folks. What is your life posture toward God? Is it one that is in submission to Him or is it one that's in rebellion against Him? Because that's the posture that's going to continue on even through the curtain would you pray with me as we finish today? If there are musicians here, I see Rose and Nick. You guys can, can come and play as you like but, uh, and go ahead right away. just want to have a word of prayer today. It's a subject that, um, that I approach with a lot of uh, fear and a lot of reverence, folks. And I don't want to give you bad information or give you misinformation about it. My challenge to you, uh, get into the scripture. The justice of God is perfect but it is in line with his character and with his nature. The more we meditate about it, the more we will worship him, the more we will cry out for his justice, the more we will long for his justice, and the more we will understand that even this doctrine, even this reality lines up perfectly with the way that God has set things up and with his character, with his nature. I pray that that you um, you would walk away with that and that you would want to share yourself and share your faith with people in a greater fashion as a result. Father, I pray for each person in the room. Uh, those who are watching the stream, those who are going to watch, listen to recordings, whatever. Uh, God, it's not popular in our culture. Maybe even in, in, in the minds of many Christians, it's not popular. Uh, but God, it's still part of your word. 
still very real and still very much a part of what you are doing and of who you are. So I pray, Lord, you would strike us and you would sober us and you would bring a greater uh, understanding to us of who you are. May our posture above all things be one of submission to you, O God, and not one of rebellion against you. Lord, where does it get us to rebel against you? What does it ultimately lead to, even in this life, just frustration, just depression, just melancholy, just sadness, just anger, uh, just addiction? All of these things are a result of us trying to do it on our own and us pushing you away, oh God. And one way or another, us trying to fight against you and posture ourselves against you. Help us, Lord, to turn the other way. Help us to repent and to humble ourselves before you and to submit ourselves to you, Jesus. We thank you for your death on the cross, which ensures eternal life for us. If we would just submit to you and seize the grace of the cross and call out to you, forgive us, Lord, afresh. Put us on a right path, on a right direction, that we would be in relationship with you, not rebellion against you. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, with us. And uh, Wednesday night, we're going to unpack it a little bit more. Maybe there are things that made your eyes big or frustrated you, you can join us on Wednesday night. Remember to pick up your kids in screen 11. God bless you today.